Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. We explore their insights into some of the most exciting trends and topics of our time and learn from their personal experiences. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we are recording a live session from the Oslo Business Forum at X Meeting Point with a live audience. Today, we're going to be talking about emerging technologies and the impact they'll have on organizations, the future of work, and how we as individuals and organizations should prepare for the inevitable change. We are talking to Nancy Giordano, recognized as one of the world's top female futurists. Nancy has built an amazing career at several of the most influential ad agencies in New York, Chicago, and L.A., and has spent her career building, shaping, and guiding a portfolio of $50 billion worth of major global brands. For more than a decade, she's been the founder and CEO of Play Big Inc., a strategic inspiration company. In addition to her ambitious career, she's also a frequent panelist at South by Southwest, a global keynote speaker, a Singularity University guest lecturer, and a world's first TEDx licensee. Welcome, Nancy. We are so happy that you wanted to join us. I'm so excited to be in Oslo. Thank you. So we like to kick off this podcast with a few questions, a personal question um, that might let the audience get to know you a bit better. And this question feels especially appropriate because it is very early. Uh, and I want to ask you what your morning routine is when you're not oh, recording right. a live podcast. You know what? I'm, I'm also the mom of three kids. Only one still at home. Uh, so I usually, I usually go to bed really, really late. I'm one of those people who goes to bed like at 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning. So unfortunately, as soon as my alarm hits at 6.30, I'm like checking my phone and I'm, I'm up and running. So I don't really, I don't know that I have a routine as much as I get up, check email, and then go and snuggle my daughter awake. Because even though she's 15 um, and she's leaving home soon, um, I climb into her bed and snuggle her awake for 15 minutes. You sound like a great mom. Um, I think you step out your comfort zone a lot more than most of us, but uh, if you were to say the last time you felt like you stepped out of your own comfort zone, when would that be? You know, I think what I've come to realize is that, you know, one person's comfort zone is another person's discomfort zone. And so it's a really a tricky thing. Like literally for me to go up and say, you know, to hi to a stranger at a big cocktail party is out of my comfort zone, but speaking to a live audience is not. Um, so... Uh, yeah, little, they're tiny little micro comfort zone things. But I think the biggest one uh, is I had an opportunity to go to Bali a year or two ago and I signed up for a painting class, which I thought was going to be a class. And it turned out to be a one-on-one -on -one session with a man who barely spoke English. It had to be a blank canvas and a few brushes. And that to me, honestly, for somebody else, they're like, that's great. And for me, I panicked. But, you know, through two and a half hours, he guided me through a painting of bamboo that I'm really proud of. Um, and it was a really great moment to play and not always think you know, which I think is not a space I, I inhabit a lot. And the irony of that moment was that I was actually at a beautiful little echo resort that had a big, um, uh, like a yoga room, conference room. And inside, they were teaching local Balinese entrepreneurs how to brand themselves. There was a whole marketing and branding class inside, and I was outside learning to paint. And I was like, oh my God, this is so weird. They, they're learning what I know, and I'm learning what they know. And it was really kind of fun to be on the opposite side of that. So... So let's actually dive into what it is that you know, because your work is to help organizations make fundamental and crucial changes considering the incredible shifts we're witnessing due to the technological advancements today. But then I have to admit that a lot of the organizations that I typically speak to, they argue that much of this is just a hype and that the world is going to look pretty much the same in five to 10 years. And I suspect that this skepticism may be a result of our linear thinking colliding with the inevitable exponential technological developments. 
But these changes are affecting the way we work, where we work, what we do. Now, could you lay out the driving forces of what change is coming today and what role technology is playing in those changes? Yeah, I think that technology is an accelerant of changes that were already happening, right? So post the recession, there was already a shift in consumer or cultural mindset that people just were looking at, at uh, brands and experiences differently, and the technology is now just amping it up. So the way I talk a lot about is escalating expectations, right? We want more personalization, transparency, flexibility, um, you know, on and on and on in terms of what we want and often what we're willing to give for that is less time, less money, less complexity, less attention, less loyalty. So the tension between those two things of wanting more and giving less, it's driving every business to have to rethink how they show up. And then technology becomes, again, an accelerant of that, right? It makes that even more intense, but it also creates opportunity to be able to meet that, that um, growing tension um, and to surprise people with uh, ways that they can have things faster, have things more personalized, have things cheaper. Uh, in a way that they didn't even realize was possible. So, but it's trying to get in that mindset of not thinking of that as a, um, a bad thing, but thinking of that as an opportunity. So you advise companies and organizations around the globe, and I know that you feel very passionately about these changes coming, but would you say that they're inevitable? And to what degree do you think that we're prepared for what's coming? I mean, how can you tell whether a company is prepared for the future? Uh, and based on your experience, are you optimistic about the future? Okay, there's so many questions in that question. I know. So uh, let's start with whether or not I think companies are prepared. And the reality is no. You know what I mean? Again, this is happening so fast. And, there's, and it's the convergence of all these technologies. Um, I was fortunate enough to build a conference a few years ago on the seven most disruptive technologies impacting business. And I put together these amazing panels around artificial intelligence and um, um, you know, virtual reality and augmented reality and 3D printing and nanotechnology and cybersecurity and human machine interfaces and um, all in robotics. And what you got to see was really how the future is unfolding, right? When you have these experts that are building the technology, currently deploying it or visionaries around it, you're like, oh my God, it's like all laid out. And what you realize is how unprepared people are for the changes. And we're still working on really small things. Um, I was telling someone last night, you know, I get frustrated that inside companies, they're still trying to figure out whether or not they should count vacation days, right? And PTO and flex time, I'm like, wow, there's so much more that's going to be coming. So I don't think that we've built the capacities inside organizations to be flexible, to be more humane, to have a really strong, um, an ethical core sounds harsh, but like really a strong intention about what it is what we do so that when these technologies come that we will know how to deploy them more effectively. So now there's a lot of opportunity. But are you optimistic? I am optimistic. Again, I've always been a believer in big enterprise because I think they hold so many resources. And if they can de be deployed to greater intention, then they can create tremendous opportunity, right? We can see some of the big... I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of Microsoft these days, you know? And I say, and Satya Nadella really has his head in the right place. I think uh, Ginny Romney at IBM has her head in the right place. And so when you've got a leader who really understands how the world is changing and the impact that their company can have on the world, then I think it's pretty powerful. And I think individually, we are all way more empowered than we've ever been before to make choices about things, to build things, to direct things, to, um, uh, to convene you know, uh, people and, and opportunities. So I am really optimistic. I just think that we need to shift our mindset uh, in many different ways uh, to be able to harness that power. I'm happy to hear that you are um, optimistic. Yeah. Now, I uh, read an interview with you where you had some really interesting thoughts on the future of work. Because basically, everyone, people, the media, leaders, are obsessed with this question. Yeah. But then you had some reflections as to why 
we are so obsessed with losing something that we have such a complicated relationship to because work for about 70% of the population feels dissatisfying and a large portion of the workforce feel like their work doesn't really matter. Yet we still cling to this idea that we have to hold on to it. And in the article, you argue that, uh, you urge that people question what we have held true for so long about what the nature of work is and the role that it plays in our lives. At least in large parts of the planet, we've built this narrow view on what our value on this planet is and we associate it directly with paid work for others. Right. How do we go about changing this? Um, uh, again, a lot of questions inside that question, but I think you know, most people spend time trying to figure out if we're going to have more jobs or less jobs. And then the next level of it is what percentage of the work is going to be reskilled, which again, Ginny Romney at IBM will say is 100% of the work, which I agree. So there's a whole reskilling piece to it. But I think that the whole structure right now, again, of what is a job and what is work and, um, and what we get paid for and what we don't get paid for and what we measure in GDP or in other measures are, are probably not indicative of really the, the energy that's being expended. So um, I talk about the fact that I've got four roles on the planet, only one of which is paid, right? I am a mother who's raising three hopefully really amazing human beings, which hopefully adds a great deal of value to the planet. I have run all this TEDx stuff. I did 10 TEDx events without getting compensated. Um, you know, whether I write or blog or, or convene or do other things. And then I, you know, speak and I consult. I would argue that the speaking and the consulting is probably the least valuable of all the work I do. But we measure that as the thing that was, you know, important because I got paid. Um, and, uh, and I think more of us are moving away from, you know, being paid by somebody else um, to determine our values. Anyway, the big question about whether or not we will have more jobs or less jobs is, I think, so uh, disconcerting for people because they can't imagine being unmoored from an organization and from that validation that a paycheck gives. And I think the reality is that there's a tremendous other way in which we will, if we can put other measurements in place and other scaffolding in place to hold people, they'll be less concerned about whether or not that work is, shows up the same way or not. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, I mean, again, right now, health insurance in the United States is tied to work. Uh, if we can decouple that that I'm not so dependent again upon that job. Um, if you look at it in Sweden, as my understanding is that there's actually less resistance to robotics because they're less worried about the job than they were about just the workers taking care of, not the job, right? So this goes back to setting up systems where people feel well held inside a system and they're willing to let go of a certain way in which it's constructed. And to your point, I mean, Gallup has said, shown for over 20 years that 70% of the people are like unhappy in their work, right? Wouldn't it be great if we could free people up to be really happy with their face on the planet? Right? And they're still going to go do things. I find that people who are really pessimistic about the future don't have a lot of faith in humanity. And I think I have a lot of faith in people's ability to still create valuable contributions without necessarily being in the construct of traditional work. So if we evolve away from basing our value in our lives on work, at least as it is today, uh, yeah. what does that future look like? I mean, what do we... How do we base our value? Well, I, it, well, uh, I think that, first of all, it's a little more internal than external, yeah. right? Um, but I also think that it starts with education and cultivating in kids from early on the value of curiosity. And so I think often we have built an education system where we kind of burn that out of kids pretty early on. And then it's about how much I can do the task as opposed to how much I live in a place of wonder and contribution. And so I think if we can reorient that, 
we start with a whole, you know, a whole different path in terms of what am I curious about, what do I want to contribute to, what do I want to build, how do I want to um, collaborate with others, what tools are available, what tools can I build? I mean, you start to imagine, right? There's all kinds of things that can be solved on the planet or created on the planet. Um, I um, created recently a career fair for the future for college and high school kids during South by, and we did an exercise. We had to think about the future of work, and some of the kids got up, and, uh, and then we did a reflection where the kids got up in a curiosity panel and talked about what they had just learned and heard and experienced. And one of the kids was like, wow, at our table, we discussed that robots are going to create robots are going to create robots, and there's going to be no need for work. And I was like, well, how do you guys feel about that? And they're like, well, I went to this poetry thing recently, and there was this whole intersection between poetry and music. We thought that was really cool, and I thought that that was great, that they could see that there's another expression of humanity that isn't necessarily about, you know, a, a current way of putting a, you know, a widget through a hole and getting paid for it. So, so what do we get paid for then? But I don't think, the question is, why do we need to get paid? Why don't we question that assumption? What if we have energy costs is really low? What if housing costs are uh, really low? What if food costs are really low? What if uh, we build some sort of social scaffolding, whether it's universal basic income, or we get compensated for the data that we create, or there's other kinds of ways in which we can actually get, um, there's a currency with which we will exchange value, but it may not look exactly the way it looks now. It could look really different. Enticing. Uh, but with all this in mind, could you describe, and, and I don't know if I'm thinking too traditionally here, but what the future of work looks like. I mean, do we just not enter the office and get our tasks done for the day? I mean, do we all work remotely and meet virtually, perhaps through the embodiment of like a robot? I mean, it would be awesome to see like a future scenario in Nancy's eyes of what the future. Well, so that's a future like. of working. Which yeah, working. Is yeah. For the future of work, right? Yep. So there's two different again. Uh, ways of breaking that out. So yeah, the future of working, to the extent that we will design and collaborate experiences with others, um, can be done a whole bunch of different ways. When I did my TEDx events with high school kids, I created six of them with high school kids, we only met for a total of probably 60 hours in the course of a year face-to-face, -face, and the rest of it was all done virtually. Right? And the better the tools, the better we will be able to collaborate. And I don't think the tools are super great right now. So as we build better and better collaboration tools and sharing tools and presence tools, we'll rely less and less on being physically together because people still want to connect. It doesn't necessarily have to be in a physical space. Um, people want to work, but they don't necessarily want to do it nine to five. Right? This is one of the fallacies of the workspace is the fact that we want people to show up and yet at the same time work is pretty much 24-7 for people. Right? We don't necessarily turn off our phones at 6 p.m. We don't stop answering email at 10 p.m. We can be traveling around the world and still be connected to the office. So how do we give people more flexibility in how they use their time? Uh, but if you look at the horizon, again, there's some really interesting technologies that show that we can use um, virtual reality or augmented reality to be able to be sort of in a shared space and with shared you know, whiteboards or with post-it notes or whatever, but we don't necessarily have to be in the same actual physical space. So there, I, I think it's just tools. Better tools will allow for better collaboration and it won't matter where we are. Yeah, and we'll get back to that because this notion of being constantly connected also has its flip sides. But first I want to go into something else because many of our listeners, they're, they're leaders and executives in, in a lot of large organizations. And I know that you've talked about the concept of leader and how it seems static and that we should be talking about leadering instead. What is leadering and how do leaders need to change their mindset in order to successfully navigate their organizations into the future? Well, I think one of the biggest mindset shifts right now is most people who are in senior leadership have been um, groomed and taught to really lead cultures of efficiency, 
right, to try and get, to reduce risk and to figure out ways in which they can uh, create consistent output that scales really easily. That has been the game for a very long period of time and it's shifted, right? That's what this whole disruption mandate, this is what technology is inviting in. And so if the game is no longer to be managing for efficiency, but to manage for innovation and for dynamic, you know, innovation, how do we um, sort of shift that whole mindset differently? And so one of the things is, again, you know, hierarchies don't work because you're not close enough to the, you know, to the edge to be able to sense and to respond. Um, one of the things I got most frustrated about in the, the consulting work I did is that even if I flew in the most perfect solution on a golden plane with a red bow, um, most organizations did not have the ability to absorb and respond. This is the beginning of the conversation, right? Um, so how do you build an organization that is more, better able to sense and to respond and to be in a, in a more dynamic place? And so leadering is partly that, and leadering is also about being a much more humanistic. Right? It's about being able to be much more human-centered in our design, much more responsive, much more thinking about the system, and again, and how this piece is connected to that piece. It's just, it's a much more fluid, much more dynamic, much more humanistic way of walking into a space in which you are, again, um, building something of value, but you're not necessarily doing it against a, a, a sort of an old construct. And what's actually interesting, if you watch software developers, like on one team they can be the team lead, on the next team they can be the team support, and there's much more fluidity around how they show up in a role. So it's less, again, about having a job or a place on an org chart than it is about having a role and understanding how that role fits into different situations. And I want to talk a little bit about more, uh, or I want to talk more about how we work, because you've been working many years with high-level brands like Sprint and Coca-Cola and Nestle. And I read that during your advertising career, decision-making was a lot simpler. You learned what worked, and then you did more of it. And you became really proficient at replicating past success. But then things shifted as new forms of media evolved, and decisions became a lot more complex. And you had to become what you call navigators instead of replicators. And in one of your interviews, you offer some great advice to organizations wanting to embrace the new kind of workplace, and you talk about imagination and curiosity and compassion and consciousness, which you already mentioned today as well. Can you tell us a bit more about what it means to be a navigator and how these values are critical in our current business environment? Well, and again, and partly is do we incentivize those values and do we cultivate for those values? But yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Deloitte will say we need to build cultures of learning versus cultures of efficiency. I will say we are learning to become navigators versus replicators. This goes back to this idea that if I had a playbook and I was just able to execute it really well and consistently it would continue to grow and the idea is that um, most of the work that we end up doing is emergent. You know, there was work that was done by a big um, manufacturing company um, which they studied um, workflow in 2017. And what they found is about 13% of the work that the organization did that year was planned the year prior. 29 or 28% of it emerged from that plan. That meant 59% of the work that they did in that year was neither planned for nor emergent from that plan. It was dynamic in the moment. You know, so just the, the way of being able to then do a, a long-term plan and a long-term staffing and long-term whatever is just, it's not working anymore, right? The work is just too um, real time. I don't know how to explain that. So um, the way that we show up just has to you know, sort of, again, shift as part of that and these old structures and I would also just say, like, if you look at just even big institutional structures, there's going to be so much data that comes through um, and so many questions that come through that they're just not set up for the amount of information that is coming through. So even if you tried to use the old playbook, it just doesn't hold anymore, right? And so you, again, have to learn to navigate and build systems that are more agile and more dynamic and more um, plug and play 
in order to be able to, I think, navigate more successfully. It sounds so simple when you say it, but then <laughs> I can just imagine being a leader in a huge organization. It's so But I mean, but here's interesting, like we work with Coca-Cola and what we were looking at is how do we um, help people feel more comfortable about drinking juice around the world so they don't have the same sugar backlash that they had for soda. And part of it is holding people well, right? The idea is if you have a giant bottle like this and you serve, you sell it as one serving size with 67 grams of sugar, people back, you know, push back. So it's really not that hard to learn to think about things from a more human-centered place and understand why people have that um, worry and why they might be making the decisions and whether or not they can trust you as an organization or they can't. And so really, it's, it's very human. It's actually not that complicated if you go in and start looking at it from a different lens. And so I remember sitting in a, in a headquarter building at Coca-Cola describing that we were more like holistic strategists, like holistic doctors, as opposed to allopathic, where you come in and do one intervention and wonder why it doesn't connect to everything else. And their line is like, what? Uh, but it is systems. It's looking at the system and looking at it from a human-centered perspective. And it's actually really, the, 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 the opportunities are right there if you can just change the way you think. Easier said than done again, though. But it seems like a lot of the responsibility, at least in regards to the future of work and how we're going to navigate this future, it's often outsourced to leadership or politicians or educational institutions. But what responsibility do we hold ourselves? I mean, how does the average employee in an average company prepare for the change awaiting or already happening? It's funny, I, I spoke a week or two ago to a big group of, uh, that, like what they're called high potentials at a bank. Um, they were literally there for two days to be groomed to become executives, right? And we went through the Q&A session and they kept talking about they and them. And I'm like, it's you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you get to make these decisions and you get to um, inspire both up and down. And I do think each of us has an opportunity to create and contribute something of value from wherever we are um, as an individual, as an organization, as an industry. And so the questions that I really help organizations answer are twofold. What does the future need and expect from us? So it's really about paying attention and being curious. And then what are we each in a unique position to create and contribute to that? So it's really about owning that sense of agency and that sense of possibility. Um, and if you can't do it in the current construct, then go figure out one where you can. Like I'm not saying that you always have to beat your head against a wall forever. Um, some organizations or some um, environments are certainly more conducive to being able to show up. But um, we all do have a responsibility to do it. And there are four words that I have stenciled on my wall at my house that are the blueprint for my family, which is wonder, think, do, repeat. It's really simple, right? But it's being in that space of curiosity and openness. It is being grateful for the inspiration, for the people who can help you do something with it and act on it, right? And it's not a one-shot deal. You, you are, it's a loop. It's a continuous loop. So it's about, again, I think inculcating in folks that agency and, and action is a part of what we're here to do, not just take orders. Exactly. Or, or outsource it, expect somebody else to do it for us. So um, we were talking about previously the th this concept of being constantly connected. And with everything happening in the world, many of us, I mean myself included, are sometimes feeling this information overload and we're just saturated with work. There's just always things to do. And it seems like we're falling short consistently and not able to grasp everything that's changing around us and we're supposed to be, you know, kind of in-depth with everything but we're just not able to. How typical is this for our time and our generation or is this just being human? 
Um, it's being human at this time in this generation, <laughs> okay? Right? Because I think we are human, and I do think this, you know, certainly accelerating more. We have more and more at our um, both fingertips and um, surrounding us. Imagine when we have ambient technology, when it's not even like you're going to a device. It's going to be all around us, right? Because we're going to be wearing whatever, you know, goggles or contact lenses that connect us to information constantly. And so we're going to have to learn to get better at being both able to integrate it, which if you look at young people, they're way better at it than older people are. Um, there's, again, a stat recently that um, Gen Z, which I guess is after millennials, are, are like fast forward through a commercial four times faster than a millennial, one second versus four seconds. If you hang out with my 22-year-old, he is like reading Reddit, watching Twitch, you know, da-da-da-da, and like constantly has a layer over the real world already because the real world just means too slow. He doesn't go to movies anymore because movies feel too slow. Um, so there's a way, and you can sit there and say, oh my God, I'm horrified by that. Look at your face. <laughs> but I will also say he's prepared then for a world that is going to be moving really fast, right? in a way that we may not be. So like if you think about like a blacksmith, you know, is not as able to respond to the world of you know, books and ideas and printing, um, we're kind of in that same space where there's, we're, we're, we're measuring our current capacity to do things against what is a future demand about how that will be coming down. But I do think that part of that is, we're, this is these are technologies that are still new to us. We're learning a digital hygiene and a digital um, practice to be able to manage when to turn it off, how to turn it off. In some ways, I think the technologies will work better with us at some point when they're ambient. They will know when we want to be turned off. Right now, we have to manually decide to do that. We have to manually decide what information we want. I think at some point, it's going to be filtered better. It's going to be coming at us in a way that is more responsive. I will say I have a Nest thermostat that does not know me, and it is super frustrating, so I don't have all faith that machines are going to figure it out. But at some point, when they really do understand who we are and what we want, there will be actually be a, a, a more um, an ally as opposed to, a, um, I think, something that puts upon us. But I also say consciousness. We also are, interestingly, as technology rises, so does our... Um, so does meditation, so does yoga, so does sort of our, our ability to check in. I talk a lot about the importance of self-awareness and reflection. Um, intuition, I've described it as informed intuition, but I don't think it's about empirically knowing anymore. I think there will be a, a more intuitive knowing that we'll be able to trust. And we were able to walk through a space from that, it's actually much easier, right? When you don't have to know, know, but you kind of know, it's, it's a really different way of walking through space and time. Listening to uh, the life of your 22-year-old actually scares me a little bit because, I mean, I'm like, oh, my God, how are, I mean, first of all, from, from a brand perspective, how are they going to get their attention if, they, if their span is two seconds or at least not two hours? Uh, to be really relevant, to be really relevant and not irrelevant. That's what I'm going to say. It's like really plugging into their life and being meaningful to them. So being as busy and successful as you are yourself, how do you balance this being constantly connected and being available to the people, the many people who want to talk to you, but also like finding time for yourself and for your family? You know, I just have a very integrated life. So I don't have like work over here and family over here and play over there. They're all intersected. Um, so I've been able to build a super, I don't know, again, integrated life, which makes it easier. You know, when I am um, Mother, again, of three small children, realized I was going to be the, the primary breadwinner, which I was sort of surprised by. Um, I quit my job, and which really freaks people out. But I decided that I would have more flexibility and sort of more control over my own life if I had more freedom. And um, so I, I'm able just to, you know, I take the afternoon off and walk the dog, or I'm sure I'm there for my daughters, whatever. Um, at the same time, then I go do this. And right now, I'll be on the road for three weeks, and in the middle of it, my daughter is flying here on her own as age 15 to meet me in London, and we get to go hang out in London and Amsterdam, and then she'll fly back, and I'll do more work in Amsterdam. And so the fact that my children are exposed to, I think, a much more dynamic life in a way in which it's more fluid. They've never seen me go to work 9 to 5. They've never seen their dad go to work 9 to 5. They have no idea, you know, um, 
I, it really it sort of stuns them that people do that. <laughs> so. It sounds perfect to me, but I guess we're all it, kind it of... It does work for me. I, I, but I do think everyone's got to sort of build the life that works for them yeah. and trust that they can make enough of a living and or have enough of a uh, lifestyle. Like, it's not about how much money you make. It's about, is it congruent with the lifestyle that you want? Yeah. And so, you know, maybe a yurt in the middle of, you know, the, the desert is, is great, you know, great. So great. Finally, we have uh, three quick questions before we wrap up. If you could give your 20 year old self two pieces of advice, what would that be? Yeah, maybe it's, it's one that I would double down on, which is just not to take things so personally. You know, I've grown up always, I'm hypersensitive to things, which is probably what makes me good at what I do, but it also the interpretation of that is not always accurate, <laughs> particularly personally. Um, and so I've learned a lot over the years just to like let, you know, again, not to take things personally and to let people have their own experience. Um, there was a hubris in which I used to walk into things and be really, really frustrated that people weren't getting it. And so now I've gotten much more compassionate that people are coming at it the best that they can and to try and meet them where they are and try and guide them into the place that I can see and that I can do. Because I have a very unique vantage point. I don't have to worry about P&Ls. I don't have to worry about supply chain. I don't have to worry about big staffs. I don't have to worry about all that stuff. I also don't have to worry about, um, you know, a parent with Alzheimer's or a partner with cancer or an addiction. I mean, there's so much that I'm relieved from that every other person often on the planet is carrying that I get to be single-minded and focused on just, re you know, creating a safe future. I mean, that's what I'm here to do, right, is usher in a safe and thriving future through my children and through the work that I do. And so it is a very luxurious position to be in. And to, again, to share that more generously and not so stridently, I think it's been a big learning for me. What's your favorite podcast? <laughs> Just you know what? I, 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 God, that's one thing I don't do. That's probably one thing I don't invest enough time in. The one that I will advocate for because I love this person is Douglas Rushkoff, who's got one called Team Human. Um, and he is really, he's a, a media theorist and an author and very much in, in sync with me in terms of this idea of, of technology meets humanity. And we have to really make sure we take good care of each other. And so I would, I would recommend Doug's Team Human. And finally, where should people go to follow you? And I don't mean here today, but online. <laughs> You know, again, I have not done a super great job of uh, sharing my thinking other than on stage or in the work that I do. I'm trying to get better at it. Um, so I, I, I think I tweet probably more than anything else. Um, tweet and LinkedIn are places where when I'm passionate about something, I share it. And I will get better at publishing over time. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Nancy. This has been incredibly interesting and inspiring. And uh, we do you feel better about the future now or no? I, I absolutely do. I'm like, I've got more questions, but I'll have to like hunt <laughs> you down afterwards. But uh, we do also get to listen to your talk later today. And uh, I hope everyone will join that because I know that it's going to be incredibly know, fascinating. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Isabel. And thanks for all the work that you do. It's important. Of course. Thank you. Thanks, guys. <laughs> thanks for listening. Uh,